let's just talk about how insight is achieved, uh, what that, what the nature of that insight is, or the, of the important insight, and how that culminates in the awakening. So, I think that I think the most important thing that is necessary before insight can occur is uh, it's interesting it's uh, like so many things in in the Buddha Dhamma we look at it and the beginning and the end are the same thing they're they're different degrees of the same thing the beginning of any path of insight is a change in the way a person regards themselves and reality and of course, the, the, the final stage, the culmination of insight, is that same thing, but at a much deeper level. But the first is, uh, which you can understand through intellectual reflection, that uh, although I think of myself as, a, as a, an entity, a being, living in a universe made up of many other separate and discrete entities with which I interact, if I reflect, I realize that that is all an inference, a kind of storytelling by the mind, because what my entire existence has consisted of is a series of experiences. The Buddha, the Buddhist, the core of the Buddhist teaching, right from the beginning, is to point out that being and experience are identical, and that all the descriptions of being in any other terms, are just just so stories that the mind makes up. Because what your entire life has consisted of is a sequence of experiences. And what those experiences consist of is consciousness and whatever is being taken as the object of consciousness in that experience, in that moment. So the beginning of insight in, and this can come spontaneously if you sit down and just meditate for long enough and you're watching your breath and you're watching this and you're watching that. You know, eventually it'll dawn on you that, well, you know, uh, all, all that's happening here is one object, I'm, I'm conscious of this object, and then it passes away and something else rises up, and then it passes away and something else rises up. And then you notice that, yeah, and they're connected with each other. The sensation of the fly landing on my forehead triggers the next object of consciousness, which is the perception of a fly, which is followed by the next object of consciousness, which is the feeling of annoyance, which is followed by the next object of consciousness, which is the urge to brush it away. And then if you actually perform an action, the, the object of consciousness is an intention, and then the next thing that follows is not any self doing anything, but rather sensations that correspond to the body carrying out the action. So one approach to Vipassana is just tell somebody to sit down long enough until eventually they start to figure this out. But the shortcut is to just know in the beginning that, you know, if you reflect that your life is a series of experiences that they're causally connected to each other. There's both an immediate causality, one moment to the next, 
but also there is a longer term causality that how you may react in this moment uh, may be determined by experiences that you had in, in sometime in the past, last week, last year, when you were two years old, who knows. But as a matter of fact, uh, when you reflect even more, you realize that all of these experiences in the past, in some degree or another, are influencing the experiences that you have in the present moment. And the reaction of your mind to the present experiences is the stuff out of which, together with the past, that it will become a part of the whole thing that determines what your experiences in the future will be. So, at that point, you have attained the purification of view. You've attained the right view that allows you to begin to penetrate more deeply in terms of the cultivation of insight. So, usually, traditionally, it's said that, that, the, that the insights that you're after are uh, the insight into the three characteristics, that all phenomena, which you have to understand phenomena in, uh, in Buddha Dhamma, uh, is, uh, are, are these mental events that, by which you experience things. Whether it's the idea of something that you think exists or whether it's a sensory experience, you know, all of these are phenomenon, and that the characteristic of all phenomena is that they are impermanent and that they are empty. As you said and meditate, once you have the right view, you begin to realize that, uh, well, for example, you'll notice that sensations just come and go in a constant flux, and that there is, there is no permanent entity in those sensations, that all uh, qualities of thingness, of, uh, where there seems to be uh, some sort of temporal, temporally enduring substance or thing or object that is identified and associated with particular qualities, that this is all something that is actually projected by the mind to explain the sequence of sensations that are taking place. And of course your mind does a beautiful job of creating a coherent explanation based on all of your past experience. And so at some point you will realize that everything is impermanent and that everything is mind-created. That whatever the source is of the sensations that you experience, that your mind, out of those sensations, manufactures a reality. And then this insight, when you carry it over into all the rest of your experiences, you, you realize that that's why different people experience different things in completely different ways. Every one of us, every person is doing the same thing that I'm doing. Their mind is creating a reality to account for sensation. At the level of, at the most basic level, all of our minds are very similar, so all of our minds construct things that are very similar. Um, so, in terms of the most fundamental characteristics by which we describe 
our projected external world, which is actually an internal world, there's a lot of conventional reality. Because we can talk about an object like this, and we can agree on all kinds of its characteristics. And we can compare our experiences. But reality, of course, is far more elaborate than the description of individual objects that we encounter. And as soon as we move to slightly more complex level of reality, we, we, we discover we're outside of the realm of conventional reality. There is no conventional reality at the level of, of uh, uh, values and judgments that we all, we all have different values and judgments. So, you know, uh, part of our experience of our conventional reality includes those things that are not shared. So we begin to, when, when we become aware of that, to be aware of that, we realize that things are, uh, not, not only is our mind concocting the view of the universe, if we stick to just simple objects and the fact that we all see them in the same way, we might think that, yes, but <clears throat> our mind must be doing a really good job of producing a very accurate version of what, what's out there. And so therefore, there must be an out there that corresponds to my vision in here. But when we look at it beyond just the most very simple level, we discover that that's not true, that everyone is living in a different world, a different reality. The same thing happens to two people and it's experienced in very different ways. And so we discover that it is, it is empty. Um, the discovery of impermanence it is not that there are enduring things that uh, come into existence, last a little while, and then disappear. It is that everything is in flux. If we begin to examine our minds, and first we notice that all sensations are constantly changing. And you observe the sensation of your breath, or the rise and fall of your abdomen, or anything, and you see that all sensations are continually in flux. And the closest there is to any thingness system in, in them is that there are certain patterns that your mind is capable of recognizing that recur. But otherwise, sensation, the realm of form, is nothing but flux. And then when we begin to reflect introspectively and we watch our mind, as our mind is constantly generating interpretive reality, interpretation of reality, we see the same thing that these these mental objects that, that account for everything, the same thing is they are continuously changing. If we turn this from the external world to the examination of the self, and we look for the self that we think we are, the self that we think we are, uh, well, there's that sense that it's permanent. It's been around as long as I can remember, and uh, I expect it to continue being there. So I have a sense of the self that has permanence. And uh, I also uh, think of this self that I have or that I am as being uh, separate and distinct, independent. That myself, the one, the one thing that's really clear is that whatever myself is, it is separate and distinct from those things that are, are not self, uh, that very much defines the way it is, the separateness. 
And the other thing is that the self is unitary, that there is just one of me. And in terms of the permanence, it's always been the same one of me. So if we examine our sense of self, we find that. And then we say to ourselves, well, okay, this is the self that I believe that I am and that I feel like I am, you know. And what is its function? Well, the self is the experiencer and the self is the doer. So in the next stage of insight, you see, it's, it's easier to see, it's easy comparatively to see that the world is actually empty in the sense that it does not have a nature from its own side, a self-existent nature of being the way our mind projects it to be. That we can see. And if we practice a lot, then we can see it more and more often. But it's, it is magnitudes of difficulty more difficult to get past this feeling that we are a permanent unitary and separate self that is the experiencer of all of these things and is the decision maker and intender and initiator of our activity. So this this is the really difficult one for us to work on. But when we examine, if we just simply observe what's taking place in our mind moment to moment while meditating and while not meditating, and of course, we can supplement this with various kinds of, of analysis. But if through analysis and observation, we go in search of the permanent, separate, and unchanging, uh, and uh, uh, permanent, separate, and uh, unitary self, everywhere we look, it's not there. Because we find that the description of self we come up with is constantly changing that we are a different self at different times, in different circumstances, and, uh, you know, at best, whatever it is, you know, the, the, these five aggregates is constantly modifying and change, being changed both by things external to it and by things internal to it. And so uh, what you do discover is that there is a continuity. Indeed, in the sequence of experiences, that makes us up, there is, con there is causal continuity. But we find that the aspect of permanence dissolves and disappears, and there is only uh, causal or karmic continuity to the self. Uh, as we go into it more deeply, one of the things that we'll discover through direct observation is that there is no experiencer that when we look, we'll see there are all those instances where we are seeing, but there's no seer. We're thinking, but there's no thinker. We're hearing, but there's no hearer. And we'll notice that the hearer, that the self, the idea of who we are, is actually a separate mental object that arises independently of the seeing and the thinking and is taken as an object. And then our mind creates a story that this that, that makes this self into the hearer, the seer, and the thinker. And so it's very important when we discover that. Likewise, when we examine carefully, we look at the arising of intentions, and we see that the intentions arise from a seemingly from nowhere. This intention, intention arises. 
And of course, we look at that and we find that the source of that intention is in that it caused that chain of causality that leads to the present experience. And the interpretation of the present experience on the basis of the past gives rise to an intention. What happens then is the sense of self arises and appropriates the intention and says, and says, well, this happened to me, I feel this way about it, so I'm going to do such and such about it. And you can see that happening. And when you see that happening, and you see that the self is just another mental object, another mental projection, that is not always there, it's only sometimes there, it's generated at certain times, then all of a sudden you have really deep insight into the emptiness of the self. The other insight that needs to come with these is recognizing that uh, in a world of emptiness occupied by uh, nothing but a mind-projected self, the self is empty and the world is empty, that if the mind clings to anything, it's going to be like clinging to uh, uh, clinging to a, a branch covered with razor blades or clinging to a burning firebrand that only, can only cause pain. And that all of these desires and fears and hopes and intentions that are based around a self that doesn't really have a substantial existence of its own, likewise, can only lead to disappointment, frustration, and to, and to pain and suffering. So this is, in the process, progress of insight, you come to recognize the impermanence, both of form and of, of nama, of mental object. You come to recognize the emptiness of the apparent external reality and of the self. And you come to realize the inevitability of suffering if you have a mind that grasps and clings to these things and generates desire and aversion out of that. Now, insight comes in different at different levels. This is profound insight. You can understand this intellectually and very clearly. The second level is that you can, by repeatedly bringing yourself into awareness of this and applying your intellectual understanding over and over again to your experience, then this begins to change your intuitive view of reality. So that now it's not just an intellectual thing, but you intuitively recognize the emptiness of things and the emptiness of self. But there is still, nevertheless, there is still this working of the mind that still believes in the self even though it sees that things are empty, both intellectually and intuitively, and generates emotions and emotional reactions from that very deep place, uh, including desire and aversion, other manifestations of craving. So the, the culmination of insight is when you have a direct experience of one kind or another that basically penetrates to this deepest level and it eradicates the attachment to the self-view and eradicates the attachment to the view of things as being self-existent. And that that is the primary fetter that is eliminated when a person achieves awakening. So in terms of any of these paths, 
we're going to go through the same process. Through a combination of analysis and observation, we are going to refine our view, and then we're going to refine our understanding of the three characteristics. And then we are going to apply that until we bring the mind to a place that it can undergo this profound change and transformation.